You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. Today we have a very special day. We have two guests who will be interviewed by Steve Blank. We have Rashmi Sinha and John Butel, who are the co-founders of SlideShare. This is a business media site for sharing presentations. Rashmi is the CEO and John is the CTO. And uh, Steve is gonna get to the uh, heart of what it means to be partners and running this business, and especially as a married couple. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Tina. Um, so the first question, Rashmi and, uh, and John, uh, for the two people out there who don't know what SlideShare does, maybe uh, you could just give us a brief description of the product and the service and website. Sure. Uh, so SlideShare, the, the core idea of SlideShare uh, was that it would be the YouTube of PowerPoint. Uh, and that was the, 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 the three-word description that we wrote when we were making up the PowerPoint of the product. Uh, and we shied away from using that description when we were pitching it to Michael Arrington and to journalists and people like that. But it turned out that, that actually being able to describe what you do in a very short, crisp way, even if you refer to other sites that already exist, is a perfectly fine, healthy, good way to communicate. So the YouTube of PowerPoint pretty much sums up what we are. Uh, now, obviously, we handle way more documents than PowerPoint now. We handle uh, PDFs. We handle videos integrated within PowerPoint. We handle audio. And we have a lot of business features as well. But the sharing of presentations online is what SlideShare is all about. Got it. So it's today, the sharing of presentations online, what was your original idea? Was that it? Or was there something else and you ended up there? Or um, what, was the, what was the impetus for the idea? So the original idea was to share presentations online. And uh, you know, it started off in a more narrow sense where we had the realization, actually John had the realization at a conference that there were sites for sharing pictures, uh, Flickr, et cetera, and there were sites for sharing videos. And uh, he basically watched people pass around presentations on a USB keychain, and he said, okay, let me find the, the Flickr for PowerPoint, and yeah. realized there wasn't any. Yeah, I, was, I wasn't just even watching them. They kept, they kept on coming up to me and asking me how they were supposed to put a PowerPoint file into a wiki. So. Um, and I was sure there would be four or five sites like SlideShare out there already, because it seemed like a very natural idea. But we Googled and Googled, and there was nothing like it. So we knew that we had to try. So, so was this a technical hack by an engineer, or was this a business from the day you had that observation? What were you thinking when, I assume, which one of you was, was the coder? Were you both, uh, John? Yeah. So, so when you coded it up, were you thinking you were coding a business or solving an individual problem for you? We were definitely thinking of it as a business. We just didn't know that much about media businesses, which is what it turned out we were building. Yeah. Uh, so we were actually running another company at the time. Ah. And uh, we had a, a software, a consulting business based around a software. The company was called Uzanto, and the software was called Mind Canvas. It was for doing game-like surveys. And in the process, we built up a product team, and we're kind of itching to do something larger and you know, brainstorming ideas. And basically, we have a third co-founder, and the three of us would discuss ideas all the time. And John used to keep on pitching us ideas. You know? So he would, he would come up with ideas and pitch us and be like, no, no, not that one, not that one. 
This was the first idea that we three immediately agreed that this made sense. And we looked back at our lives and thought of the many times that, you know, that it would have made sense instead of sending someone a 40 meg file to actually email them a link. So the use case seemed very simple, and that's what we started from. Uh, we were profitable at the time with this other business, so we didn't need revenues immediately. So the first, uh, but we believed right from the beginning that there would be a business here because of the nature of what we were doing. But the first, when we launched it, we were focused on users and gaining traction. So wait a minute, you had an existing company yes. that was making money, yes. and you had this idea, and, and, and you pivoted or you just shifted from the existing stuff to here overnight, or no. did it take a while, or did somebody kind of say, well, let's do this as a science experiment, and how did that work? So, so we launched, and uh, you know, and it uh, immediately took off. I mean, I, I distinctly remember that it was uh, October 4, 2006. It was supposed to launch, we thought, at 6 a.m. PST, but we didn't realize that when media people talk about you know, time, they're always talking about EST. So it launched at 3 a.m. PST, and we suddenly woke up, and the site was live, and we weren't quite ready yet. And if we'd had that extra three hours, things <laughs> would have been completely different. <laughs> But the, but the funniest, the most interesting thing was that we had an invite-only site because we were, you know, we, we, we were concerned about how much traffic we would get. There was these stories of sites getting taken down. So the first thing we did was we had these thousands of people trying to join, and we were accepting each of them individually. So everybody in the team, the five of us, are sitting there and saying, yes, 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 accept this person. And the first thing we wrote after launch was a check-all button. So that you could take a whole screen of people and check all, and you know, let them into the site. That had incredible ROI. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you just mentioned something I didn't realize. So the, the, when I heard you talking about a company, I assumed you had like a hundred people. So it was five of you yeah, as, yeah, as a company, but it was profitable. And, and yes, it was profitable. You know, we were we were doing well, and that's why we had enough bandwidth to kind of say, let's let's try this thing. And so, how long did it take before you realized that maybe this new thing is actually? kind of the company versus your existing business? So SlideShare, the site launched in October 2006, and we incorporated it as a business in May of 2007. So in, uh, eight months? Yeah, so I mean, and we were, we were doing well, we were really growing, but at the same time, we had enough revenues to keep up. We were very scrappy, we were kind of a lean company, we've been- Yeah, uh, we didn't want to pay the money for the lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> And so uh, when you uh, became SlideShare, from five to how many? Well, it, that took a while. So we became, we incorporated SlideShare, and then we said we realized by that time we needed to look for funding because we were growing faster than we could keep up, and uh, it still took us a while to actually close down the other company. And it was a very emotional decision. Yeah, we talk about pivots, but it's not so simple. I realized when we uh, went and spoke to our lawyer, and we said, okay, we are incorporating SlideShare, and then he, he took a look at our situation, which was we had this great growing site, and we had this other business, which we were all kind of you know into as well, and he said, you're going to have to close that down in order to really give it this a chance and I, I we came back we were so depressed it was really depressing yeah we had to kill mine canvas it was yes. very sad and 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 so but when you started slideshare did you unlike your existing business did you have a revenue model or a business model on how to make money or was it just we're going after users or users are grabbing this out of our hand we'll figure it out later what were you thinking we just knew that there was this big social media explosion that there was all of this sharing there were all these examples of these other sites and we were we were imitating so we didn't really think very hard about business at all we thought only about traction but how do we make this site really, really big? 
And in retrospect, I think that was exactly the right thing to do. I, I didn't have the model to, to think it through while we were doing it. But media businesses don't make sense at a very low scale because you have to go out and sell advertising to somebody. And nobody wants to buy 10,000 impressions uh, you know, of random stuff, or even 10,000 impressions about something really specific, like you know, a really valuable topic like virtualization. That's just not enough to be worth the conversations that you have to have to sell the advertising. So you need to get up to a fairly big scale before you can start making money off of running something that's sort of analogous to a radio station or a TV station. So you, you now mentioned media business a couple of times. And so in your head, you now have a model of what a media business looks like. Maybe you could expand on that um, a bit and help us uh, understand what that business model is. Sure, sure. Uh, so. There are big brands uh, out there that are trying to get their message across. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to reach particular audiences. Uh, and you can either describe the audience by you know, using tools that measure the age and the demographics and the interest. Or you can say, it's this type of media. And obviously, this type of person is interested in this type of media. Uh, and if you can build up enough traffic and you can build up enough content around those topics, then you can actually uh, afford to take the time to make phone calls out and have phone calls come in to the kind of people that make the deals for doing large-scale brand advertising happen. And so is this large-scale brand advertising your current business model? Is that One leg of the revenue. Okay. I would say it's, it's, a, it's a more complex equation than that. That's one of the things, that the first thing that we so really got going. So was that the first, the first business model you had? Was yes. Well, the first one was AdSense, but AdSense, AdSense okay. doesn't really pay the bills. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't, but I have to say that it's a very good idea to put it there for a few reasons that, A, your users understand the pact that you're making with them, which is that there will be advertising on the site, and for that, you will have access to the service ah. for free. So it, and we'd watched when Flickr tried to start advertising maybe in year two or three, and then they had this huge negative reaction. Yeah, so Flickr you started from never, day one? Yes. Flickr was never able to do advertising because they, they didn't get their users used to it. Got yeah. it. So uh, your goal was to train your users that this was an ad-supported site from Correct, yeah. day one. And, and even now we have, you know, and now we are rolling out a bunch of services, you know, which are business services for the kind of audience that we have put together. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, media, what's a media business? Yeah, what, it, it's uh, getting, you know, some way of getting the content. And for us, we don't produce content like a TV show or a radio station. Instead, we motivate, we build a service which is so simple to use that users come in there and share their content and we give away that platform for sharing for free and help them get their content across. So in, in a way that the way that we think about SlideShare is that we always focus on our users. As long as we make them happy and we make them want to come back to SlideShare again and again, we are doing our job and you know, it'll Got grow. It. And, and so when you started, um, did you have to do much active um, acquisition of users or was just just a viral um, takeoff like Twitter and Facebook? Or did you actively go out and acquire users? It was it was viral, but this was you know um, Twitter and Facebook have become much bigger in the past year and a half. I would say we started three and a half years ago almost. So at that point, it was uh, blogs. You know, people. So the, there were phases. The first phase was that right from the beginning we were a utility and we were a very strong utility. There was no other way of getting your presentations on the web at that point. So you came to SlideShare, you uploaded your presentation, within a minute you could take the embed code back. Right. Well the embeds were like advertisements for SlideShare all across the web. 
Got it. So then people would click on the link. The only thing we ask users is that there's a small button at the bottom right of every presentation which has the SlideShare brand and the link back. So we got people to that. So that embed code actually was a non-obvious invention. I mean, whose idea was that? <coughs> one of you, one of you two yeah. need to take credit so, for it. I don't know. No, John. I, I, don't, I, I, I don't remember, actually. So one of the things that, that happens in Silicon Valley is that you have all of these experts in various domains that are right here and are willing to participate in exchange for equity rather than for cash. And that is obviously huge when you don't have any cash to pay people with, right? <laughs> uh, and so among the other, uh, the other expertises that we bring, in, bring into, the, into our team this way, uh, there is an SEO guy that we work with who, uh, in conversations with him, we came up with the idea. Because that changed the nature of acquisition. It, it, all of a sudden, instead of just using the site as a place to store uh, presentations, you now could actually display those stored presentations on your own blog mm -hmm. and generate traffic from that blog user's uh, uh, site by having them click on the SlideShare yeah. logo. We had that working from day one. Wow. So that was the basic nature of the service. Uh, was that you know you would come in, you would upload, you would take it back to the your site, and then we would get a link back, and there would be word of mouth, and you know basically you have users in waves. So the first phase of users is these content creators who come in and who get from word of mouth, they find out about the service, they upload their content. And these were people from all over the world, yeah. predominantly outside of Silicon Valley. Really? So this wasn't like a, a sort of a Twitter or Flickr, you know, tight jeans wearing like early 30s demographic. Uh, All those hip. wearing tight jeans, raise your hand. <laughs> this was much more like, um, I don't know, sort of very, very sort of web-oriented people from very different walks Lots of life. life. Yeah. So I, I remember there were a lot of uh, preachers uploading their PowerPoint to SlideShare from day one. on the first day. And I didn't even, I didn't even know that like, people gave sermons using PowerPoint. That was kind of a, a mind-blowing thing to me, but apparently that's the way it's done now. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount in 12 yeah. know, slides, is that no? yeah. interesting? Yeah, that's um, be 10 bullet points, that'd be too many. It's right. actually a pretty popular category. Uh, so when uh, eventually uh, uh, you guys uh, got large enough to attract not only angel money, but uh, venture capital money, how did that happen and what was the mutual interest between you and the VCs? Well, I mean, we, as you know, John says, you know, we, we went kind of in stages, yeah. So we, at one stage, we decided, okay, this is this is going to be much bigger than we can make it in an organic manner, the way we've been growing, and we need to um, get some outside funding in. And then we brought in advisors, and then a bunch of angel investors, and pretty soon after that, we did a Series A. Um, do you want to? Yeah. Well, just drilling down on that a little deeper. The weird thing about Silicon Valley is that your first investors are possibly your lawyer, which is not true anywhere else, but it's definitely true here. Uh, if, if you have an idea and you're building a product, you're going to have to start a company. And the smart thing to do, and what, what most people seem to do, is they go to one of the sort of 10, you know, top 10 firms that are, do the startup legal stuff in Silicon Valley, and it's very easy to figure out who those companies are, uh, those firms are. And you say, this is the company that we're, that we're starting, and this is the demo of the product. And it is really like pitching an investor. You, you, you need them to have faith in you because what you're asking them to do is to essentially give you services that you will pay for when you raise your Series A, which is, is and isn't a high level of confidence. I mean, on the one hand, 
it's $25,000 of services that they can, they're set up to crank through relatively quickly. A lot of it's being done by, by temps and, and, uh, and legal secretaries. But on the other hand, it is you know, stuff that they usually sell. And so convincing the, convincing the lawyer is sort of a first step towards having social proof. Uh, and social proof is important because as hairless monkeys, we're not really good at making rational decisions. <laughs> Uh, and so the way that we have adapted to make decisions is by paying attention to what the other hairless monkeys are doing, assuming that there's some wisdom in the crowds. So is this hairless monkey fundraising or social proof fundraising? Or? Same thing. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. It's so it's like, social proof fundraising? Yeah, so. social proof fundraising is probably better than hairless monkeys as a, and, as a brand. And, and is that a term you kind of use to describe what you guys did? Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically each, you know, the, at the top are the, the, uh, the venture capitalists. And they all just are very insular, and they all kind of hang out with each other. And it's hard to, to, to jump directly in there uh, as somebody who doesn't have a lot of connections. So what you need to do is work your way from the outside to the inside. It's like layers of an onion. And the lawyers and the, uh, and the advisors who are getting stock in exchange for um, you know, a little bit of their personal brand and some uh, advice from time to time, are, are the first layer. And those are people who are not actually putting money into your idea. They're just putting their own efforts into your idea and the, associating themselves with you. I mean, just to put that, what he's saying into context, is that even though we were in located in Silicon Valley, we did not have a huge network of investors and the kind of people who built companies. So we were kind of coming from the outside. So for us, the big thing we had was SlideShare. I mean, you could look at the numbers and you could see that the site was taking off. So that's what we, we, you know, in fact, our first angel investors like Mark Cuban, Jonathan Abrams, uh, Dave McClure, all of them we met on SlideShare. So basically, you know, at one point when we decided we were going to raise money, we emailed some of our users who we knew were angel investors, and they were the first people to invest in SlideShare. Did you go by the most popular uh, number of visitors on the slides? or No. no. Oh, did you actually look at the content of the slides then and decide they were the well, most Some of them had popular, popular content. Okay. But and, and, and so when you met your VCs, um, I, I assume you went through a couple of VC firms before yes. you found the ones... Uh, and who who was your who were your investors? So uh, Benrock ben invested in that. And so what did they see? Um, did they see the same thing you thought you saw, or did they see something different? I would say yes. With them, they saw the same thing, and there was instant recognition. In fact, we used to we kind of we didn't really articulate it as a media business at the time. And when we described what we had and where we were going with it and what the lo larger vision was, you know, what we were building for, then they kind of recognized the signs. And they, they immediately were able to say, oh, you, you, this is what you're doing, this is how you should, and it was, there was instant kind of connection there. Got it. So it, it went from uh, just the two of you and three other, or three founders and two employees, a five-person company that pivoted, and then you got funding and now you're growing. But I'm kind of interested in you guys and who you, who are you? You know, where'd you come from? And, and you mentioned now a couple of times that while in Silicon Valley, you were Silicon Valley outsiders, and so um, tell me something about each one of you, and how did you become entrepreneurs? So I have a very random path towards entrepreneurship. I actually got a PhD on my way to becoming an entrepreneur. Um, so I was at Brown University, and then I was at Berkeley doing some research. And uh, while I was doing research, I was doing research in cognitive neuropsychology. So I loved what I did. I was studying Alzheimer's disease, understanding the brain, uh, fascinating stuff, absolutely loved it. But at some point, I realized that the problems of the web were interesting me more. So I started consulting, 
left UC Berkeley, started consulting, did that for a year and a half. UC Berkeley, that's a small college up north. <laughs> yes, <you know. laughs> not Stanford, sorry. Um, and at that, it was at that point that uh, John was, uh, you know, he was working at Commerce One, and you want to maybe describe your path to it. And then we started working together. So we didn't start, you know, we didn't begin working together. We just kind of started collaborating on the project, and then that project turned into our first yeah, you, software. She landed a gig. Uh, and at eBay. Yeah, at it, was, it was basically, it was, it was ridiculous. It was basically redesigning the entire information architecture of eBay. Yeah. It was this huge, huge project that she managed to land. And so I just started helping out with that because it was there. And it was very clear to me that there was a software product in the approaches that she was using to solve the problem for the customer. So, but the, I'm just kind of interested. Yeah. You're, you have a non-traditional background. For, what is traditional for entrepreneurs? Yeah, yeah but, entrepreneurs. well, you know, I but, <laughs> didn't go to Stanford. <laughs> then, uh, no, I'm, I'm actually uh, interested in the, degree. in the in the brown background. Did you didn't have Andy Van Dam? Did you? I, as a, I did. Does, so does everybody? Want Andy you? Van Dam is you know is a very well known graphics professor. So, but I was not in that department. So we have a funny story. So we met at Brown. And uh, I was doing, uh, I was in the cognitive psychology department and doing my PhD and just took a class in computer science or two just for the heck of it, you know, just kind of to learn a little bit. And uh, that's when I met, and that was Andy Van Dam's class that we met. Sure. Uh, and I was taking the class too, and she was definitely the, the hottest woman in the class. And so I, I know knew, we're filming this. I knew I had to meet her somehow. But this and this was in the old days before everybody had a cell phone. So that was the only reason that this approach worked. It was it was cheesy, but it worked. I actually took off my watch and and hid it in my pocket, and then I went up and asked her what time it was. And she, she told me what time it was. And I won't go there. <laughs> so did, did having a PhD, and, and I'm going to get to you in a second, John, like, having a PhD, do you think help or hurt uh, being an entrepreneur? You know, I've never really thought of it that way. I've done different things at different points in my life and loved whatever I was doing at that point. And um, in some ways, having a PhD did help. I kind of have the scientific temperament. I like numbers. I really enjoy numbers. I like experimentation. And I think a lot of the ways that modern web products are built is through a process of experimentation, you know, hypothesis testing. I mean, you, you talk a lot about that. I mean, that's what I did in my PhD was hypothesis testing, you know, and then figuring out what the data shows and then moving step by step. Um, I learned a lot about people, you know, how to understand people. I still think that's what we are building. The primary problem is understanding what our users want and making them happy. So um, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what I'm going to do next, and I'm very comfortable with that. I have no idea what I'll be doing in five years. But does the speed of a startup uh, <laughs> differ uh, slightly from your PhD research? Uh... Oh, absolutely. I think that's the reason I left, I left uh, academia, because I, I did not like the speed. It's too slow for me. And you, your end product is writing. And you know, I, I can write a blog or two, but I can't write academic papers. I suck at it. So, <laughs> so this was better, definitely That's the pace. That's a technical description for less than optimum. <laughs> <is it? Yeah. laughs> so this was definitely much more my speed. I like it. I'm, a, I'm an impatient person. I'm always looking you know, to the, do the next thing to go on. And, and this is your first CEO? Uh, yes. And, and so what didn't you know? when you became CEO that you wished, and you could keep the list to about 20. <laughs> uh, what, what were kind of the top three things that you now know or, or are learning? 
I mean, I would say a lot of things. Um, I knew how to build a product. I didn't necessarily know how to, you know, run a company, the entire thing, and watch it grow. And for every day is a learning experience. I mean, I would say the list of what I don't know is much larger than what I do know. But the only thing I really know is how to learn. Yeah, how to figure out what the situation in front of me is and try to get better at it. I can see one of our VCs in the audience. I didn't know how to run, you know, do the board meeting and stuff. There were a lot of things I didn't know. So this is a typical example of a, a founding CEO, entrepreneurs, technical team. Is there a book or what? how did you do this? Is it friends or a network? How does an entrepreneur anywhere learn how to run a company? I would say everyone around you, the, um, the advisors, uh, people on your board, you just ask a lot of questions. And I think what they are able to give you, which I find very valuable, is that they're able to spot the signals and see the patterns. For people who are good, they're able to tell you what stage you're <laughs> at, and these are the issues you are seeing, and this is one way to deal with them. Uh, I mean, I think it also gets down to the whole Silicon Valley magic again, which is even as, as sort of semi-outsiders, you can connect networks of people that have been through the stuff that you're about to go through. So, uh, you know, right after we launched, uh, I, I was freaking out about operations, you know? Yeah. How, do you, how do you keep a cluster of servers up? We'd never had to do that before. And I was able to find, you know, eight or ten people who had been through exactly what we were doing, you know, walk me through what tools they used, what worked, what didn't work, what problems you don't have to solve. I mean, one of the key nuggets was that in that early launch phase, when traffic is growing like crazy, you don't even really need any alerting because you're, you or somebody from the company is on the site for at all times <coughs> looking at it. So if something goes down, you'll know it because you'll be experiencing it. You're so passionate about it. So, so Jonathan, that brings us to you as CTO and co-founder. What was your background? I, I heard you were also at Brown, but um, w were you in the CTO founding track for as an <laughs> entrepreneur? or? Sure. Uh, so I was a computer graphics geek at Brown. Uh, Andy Van Dam is the, sort of the one of the founders of you know computer graphics. Did a lot of the the, uh, the work. And uh, my first gig out of uh, out of school was working at Advanced Visual Systems, which was uh, a scientific visualization, 3D graphics startup in Waltham, outside of Boston. And that was really cool, and that really matched with what I had done in undergrad. And then when Rushmi got her postdoc at Berkeley, uh, you know, I had to move to Silicon Valley. And I was like, that's okay. Uh, but as I started interviewing and asking around, you know, what was happening, a lot of the people that I knew in computer graphics were saying, you know, this was 1998. Uh, they were saying, you know, there's a lot of people making a lot of money doing business stuff. And so I thought, well, well a lot of money is kind of interesting. Uh, and, uh, so you were an advanced engineer. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I ended up getting a job at this outfit called uh, Commerce One, which was a B2B startup. And that was just an incredible experience because it was maybe like the, stereo, you know, the, the stereotypical sort of dot-com experience where way too much money got thrown at something that everybody was really excited about. When I joined, we were like 125 people, and we grew to 4,000 people. Wow. Uh, and now there's nobody. There's nothing left. It's, it's just all completely gone. Um, but it was this very exciting curve. And in the process, I got to see a lot of people making a lot of mistakes. Uh, and that was very helpful. And, and, and uh, 
Do you think that was your training for um, getting it right at SlideShare? What, what do you think um, in your background prepared you for being an entrepreneur? Sure. I, I think really the first, uh, the first entrepreneurial experience uh, laid the grounds for the second one. Uh, the, the initial product that we did, uh, Mind Canvas, really it taught us a lot about how to manage people, uh, how to iterate, um, how much software to build before you release something. I think we made the mistake of building way too much software before we actually started trying to sell it. Um, it uh, taught us how to sell. Uh, and that being able to sell something is very important. I mean, the great thing about that first product was that we started out with something that we knew that Rushmi could sell. Uh, and the first time that we ran the software, we made $15,000. Yeah. It was a while at SlideShare before we made $15,000, right? It's very different experiences. Um, so yeah, the, uh, the initial experience with Mind Canvas uh, was definitely laid the grounds for us to make that pivot into SlideShare. Interesting. And, and can I ask, are, you've made enough inferences. Can I uh, assume you two are a couple? Is that it? <laughs> yes. I thought that was in the introduction. Fine. I just, wanted, I just wanted to check just between us. No one else is listening. Uh, and because that brings up an interesting question about, obviously, uh, uh, the relationship at home and the relationship at work means this is a 24 by 7 activity and how does that how do you manage that i mean do you ever talk about anything else than the slideshare <laughs> that often <laughs> <laughs> no no we actually took our first vacation after a long time and it was it was awesome it was really good to take a break and i feel like the company has matured enough that we could do that uh, I think, you know, as they say, you have to work closely enough with your co-founder that you want to like them enough to be married to them. And I think it's true. You really have to work very closely, and this makes it easier for us, you know. We actually like each other, even after working together all the time. I, I, I think getting close to your co-founders is kind of a, <laughs> uh, a, a good description of, of yeah. this, this relationship. But I, I how mean, do you settle, I'm sorry, how, how do you settle conflict? So we, we do have a lot of disagreements. I mean, it's not as if we agree on everything. And I think that's very healthy. You know, like you don't want a startup where everybody's agreeing. Yeah, you, want, you want healthy disagreements and people to have different points of view. Um, I don't know how we settle it. I mean, technical stuff, I decide. Business stuff, you decide, right? It's pretty straightforward. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm actually not sure. I think it's just issue by issue that we come to. We also have a third co-founder, and we come to consensus, I think. I think we do uh, kind of talk about things enough that we understand each other's perspective. There are some times when we just have one pet idea, and we go ahead and do it. So numbers. Yeah, it's like 20% yeah, like time, right? Yeah. Hmm. yeah, numbers. So I mean, partly, you know, if, if John feels very strongly about something, and I don't agree, you know, and it, I don't think it's a great idea. I think a lot of times he'll try it anyway and then do a first pass <laughs> and then, you know, look at the numbers and then we'll, we'll prove to each other, well, look at this, this worked. Um, I think it's interesting, you know, working together and being married together. And for us, it wouldn't be any other way. I can imagine for a lot of couples, it doesn't work. But that, that's an amazing uh, story because I <laughs> could not imagine uh, doing I mean, that. There's a, there is a lot of power in being able to just have a very high bandwidth connection with the other person that yeah. you're you're working with. You know, you you know, you wake up and you know that thing that you've been processing at night about the business that the idea has come to you is immediately into the other person's head. And by the time you're in the office, like you've already pushed that idea forward two hours. It's it's pretty incredible. Uh, but it also 
is exhausting. And do you, th do you think there's any downside for the company in having a couple running uh, the CEO and CTO? I think if you if you get caught in emotional stuff and you're not able to make comp decisions that are good for the company, then yes. I don't think that's the case for us. Okay. I don't think it, it interferes. I think it helps us. Okay. Yeah, and you basically you have to keep it professional. So you know you have to you have the 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 way that you are in the office in the office context and the way that you are at home, and they're different. Okay. And well, just to segue um, back to something you said earlier about strategy and, and your experience in that is is SlideShare about strategy or is it about execution? It's about both. I mean. Uh, it is about both, but I would say that it has surprised me how much, how important execution is, you know, and um, you can have all this, in Silicon Valley, you meet a lot of very smart people with a lot of great ideas. And very few of them have the patience and the kind of persistence, um, the metric mindedness, all the things you need in order to actually make it come alive, watch it, walk, you know, watch it every step of the way. So. It's both, but um, and there are phases when it's one one is more important than the other. You know, you kind of have this grand vision and you start laying it out, and then for a while it's about it's about you know your your execution, and then you have another thing that you are doing, and then it becomes about vision again. And so, what was the hardest execution? Let's take you, John, for for uh, engineering that you had to do at SlideShare. Sure. I mean, so I think just the just the raw scaling of the site uh, was an uh, incredible challenge for us. I mean, we get 25 million visitors a month. It's just this huge Whoa. torrent of traffic. And we run on a uh, very modern infrastructure that's sort of based on the assumption that you have lots and lots of computer time to waste and that developer time is more productive. I think you guys actually, uh, DHH came here uh, last week or maybe a couple weeks ago, so you heard from, from the master. DHH is? Uh, David, uh, Hammer, Hammerschmidt? Mm. I don't know. Hanson. Hammer, Hammer, Hammer. Yeah, Hanson. Hanson, there we right. go. Uh, but uh, so we, we run in Ruby on Rails, and Ruby on Rails uh, eats up a lot of compute resources. And so figuring out how to run operations and having to learn that very quickly when it's just three guys who know how to program but don't know how to do that kind of thing was very, very challenging for us. And uh, we struggled a lot. And I think we're over that hump now, but it was a, for, a, for a solid year, it was something we really had to lean on. So for you, execution was immense scale in a short period of time, not being a scale domain expert and figuring out how to bring that expertise around you, in you, and, and into the DNA of the company. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But I have one other point about execution versus strategy, which is that if you're doing your execution right, hopefully it should generate your strategy. I mean. All you have to do is have, if you have some smart ideas and you're executing right, you should be able to test them with enough efficiency so that the ones that are working will manifest themselves. So that you'll get proof that the, you know, this strategic idea that you had actually has legs and is worth investing in. Got it. And was the same execution um, uh, problem or, or focus there on customers and users on the business side as well? Let me think about what has been the, I, I don't think it's a single particular thing. I think the scaling thing is definitely something that everybody in the company will resonate. That was a big challenge for us, which you really don't face in the beginning, and then right. you suddenly start facing it when you're starting to grow. Um, I, I don't think it's it's one thing. I think it's, it's a lot of, in terms of execution, something that it's hard is, um, getting people to stay focused, getting the entire team to stay focused on a problem, doing, I think it's very exciting to build new features. Everybody it's, loves to build new yeah, features. And it's harder to, you know, um, 
just make that work day in and day out, be metrics driven. That part I find is I find it hard to kind of drill that into the company, not just do it myself, but to get everybody in the company, you know, that's the way we think. So tell me about metrics driven. That's the first time I heard that. What does that mean at SlideShare? So, you know, what that means for us right now, for example, is that for most of the important projects that we do, the different parts of the application, we have a daily email that comes in, and we've identified what the main things we care about for that particular part of the app. We look at it. So, so that, kind of like a dashboard? Yeah, it? kind of a dashboard. But you don't have to go to it. It just comes in your email to everybody who's working on it, and then we react to it. So we do this pretty much every day, and, uh, you know, different frequencies depending on how fast we are moving. So you've instrumented the important parts of yeah. both your site and your business. Is yes. that, is that yeah. true about users and customers? And, Correct. And also uh, the technical parts as well? About Absolutely. And like one of the key insights that we've had is that um, metrics are very important. And I, I think executive dashboards are kind of bullshit, frankly. Like the idea that there's like an, you know, one executive who's Another looking at a dashboard for less than <laughs> and yeah. is okay. going to be making the decisions. And then there's a bunch of worker bees who like get assigned task, you know, yeah. one colon C dot two and execute it. And then it meets the spec. And then this, the strategy guy says, yeah, it's good. I, I think the numbers have to be pushed down into the team. And the team has to be empowered to do things that will drive the numbers. Yeah. And what you find about that is that the ergonomics of metrics are really bad. Like if you use Google Analytics and you tell an engineer, okay, so you have to, this is how you go to find, um, you know, this funnel, you know, so you can figure out, you know, what conversions are like and, and whether his numbers are doing well or badly. Uh, and there's six clicks and it takes two minutes to get down there. I mean, he's already hacking 55 hours a week, 60 hours a week, building important stuff, doing incredibly complicated things. He doesn't have time and he doesn't have the inclination to go monkeying around. So it needs to be ambient. It needs to be like we have LCD screens in both offices that show the charts of the statistics that we care about so that you can just glance over and be like, what is happening to CPU? That's crazy. Uh, without having to go and log onto an application and look things up. The emails serve the same function. They make it so that it, the numbers come to you rather than you having to go to the numbers. I think that's really important. And do you iterate quickly on those that user yeah. data? Yeah, so you know, for some of the business features that we're working on right now, we iterate every day. You know, every day, you know, actually yesterday I told my engineers that the email comes in at midnight, which means that I have to wait up till midnight every day to look at the numbers before deciding, you know, what we are doing today. Um, so I said, you know, can we have it coming at 9 p.m. so that I can uh, go to sleep a little bit earlier uh, after having looked at the numbers? So we iterate daily on a lot of things. Yeah, yeah we deploy maybe uh, 10 or 15 times a day to the site. So the code's constantly changing. It's constantly morphing. And since you guys are kind of now at the leading edge of some of this uh, social media uh, trend on the, uh, on the web, what do you see emerging? Are any future trends that are just clear to you that the rest of us should know, and you don't have to tell us what your secret sauce is, but any insights about how the web is shifting? In the so we're definitely looking at real time very closely, and I think you know everybody's talking about it, so it's not any new insight I'm bringing you, but I do think that what real time means for different domains, you know, uh, that's what we are thinking. What does it mean for SlideShare? Without going into details about what we are thinking about, um, definitely I think that is, you know, different apps will become real time in different way. 
and just move faster than we move right now. And that's going to have a huge impact. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, be about the now. Yeah, yeah about be the about now. now. Yeah. And, and SlideShare now, excuse the pun, um, in the last month introduced uh, channels uh, to the public yes. and, and you've also now have a focus on business. Uh, do you want to just close maybe just telling us uh, your latest? Uh, sure. So, I mean, that's, we are building, we've been building up to this for a while. So in the last year, the biggest thing that has happened to us is that we have a lot more businesses and organizations joining SlideShare than we, earlier we had individuals. Now it's a lot of business and organizations. And the latest feature that we have uh, launched is for, it's called branded channels. And it's basically recognizing that when a, when a company wants to be on SlideShare, they want to carry with them their branding, their look and feel, and kind of have it be an extension of their site. Um, so we launched that. It's it's doing really well. Uh, we have a bunch of uh, great organizations, uh, um, you know, some of some companies and some uh, people like the White House is on SlideShare. Uh, Pew oh. Internet is on SlideShare. There's a lot of you know great content if you go to SlideShare.net/channels, and you'll see a lot of other things that we're going to be rolling out, which are once again about this recognition that there's a lot of business usage of site So can the Republican Party buy ads on the uh, White House uh, channel? <laughs> no, or? they can't. We, you know, we take off the ads. That's part of what you get with the channel is there's no ads on any of your content. And, but there are paid channels rather yeah. than, ah. And, and the, the, they're paid and some of them we are giving away for free. So, yeah. you know, the, it's not as if the government agencies are paying us. Ah. But. but I think one of the important things about the channels idea is that like you know, a lot of the other things that we've been talking about, it emerged out of our interaction with customers. Uh, so we didn't just think, oh, like, let's build some channels, let's devote six months of engineering work to building channels because people want a branded space. We sold branded spaces to multiple yeah. organizations. And we realized that there was actually demand for this that we were not supplying because we were, you know, just doing one-on-one -on -one sales of this, you know, higher-end product. So. Uh, we productized it and then we released it to the public. So it was informed by our experience trying to sell things and, and having success at it. And are other products going to come out of that process as well? Yes. So right now we have three business services that we've launched. Uh, there's, there's channels, there's lead share which allows you to collect leads on your presentations and there's ad share which allows you to promote your presentation in a contextual manner. And we, we are uh, building more and then some new things about the current ones. That's great. So before I open it up to the audience, what questions should have I asked you guys? What would you Good like question. an entrepreneurial audience to know about either you, your company, or more importantly, the entrepreneurial adventure that you've been on? I mean, I think just, a, just an important concept to get across is that a lot of times getting into entrepreneurship isn't just a, just a, a, a jump. It's, it's a pivot. And a lot of times there's multiple pivots before you can get to your destination. It's very hard. I don't, some people can work as a full-time employee of somebody and do a startup on the side until they prove that it has traction. I mean, uh, the Bloglines guy, uh, Mark Fletcher, did that. He worked for Sun. He built Bloglines on the side. And then once it was working, he quit Sun. It takes a very special kind of energy to be able to do that. When you're working in a professional context in a competitive place like Silicon Valley, it tends to suck up all of your cycles. And you need, to, you need to get clear of that. And if the first thing that you do isn't necessarily your dream product, or isn't even a product, if you can just get in a place where you have money coming in the front door that is not from an employer-employee relationship, you're well on your way to being able to do that. So we, we did multiple jumps before we got to SlideShare. There was employee to consulting, consulting to small B2B product, and then small B2B product to SlideShare. And I think that that the ability to do that is important, and it's not always great clear advice. Great observation. 
Anything else you want to add? Or? I mean, I think it's interesting, you know, for a, uh, for an audience of people who maybe are thinking about entrepreneurship as to whether uh, what what motivates, you know, what motivates one. And I think partly for me, it is independence. You know, I I do things I enjoy, and it's always the case. There's always a new challenge. I think one of the interesting things about a CEO job is it changes every six months as the company is going through different phases, and you never quite know what's going to come your way enjoying that part. Being comfortable with uncertainty, there is a lot of uncertainty and you definitely have to be comfortable with that. Um, yeah. Great. Good. So what we're going to do is for the next uh, 14 minutes open up questions to the audience and then after, uh, um, after this session, uh, um, uh, Jonathan and uh, Rashmi have uh, gratefully, uh, gracefully um, agreed to uh, come to our MS&E 278 Spirit of Entrepreneurship class. So for those of you not even in the class who have uh, additional questions who don't get answered, you could follow us across the uh, campus and we'll uh, uh, have you join us in our classroom. So let's open it up and uh, questions. Why don't you uh, just pick. Okay. Yeah. Um, my question is um, kind of at a high level, macro level. The, the social media landscape is changing rapidly. Sites like Twitter, I think, have had a, a thousand, thousand percent growth in the last year. And, and news organizations and big companies are all jumping on this kind of bandwagon that's taking off. And a lot of people aren't comfortable with it. They don't know what it is. What is it going to do for me? How would you tell somebody like my mom, like, what is the point of all this? Where is it going? And um, why should I not be afraid? Because I, I know people who are like, I'm kind of scared of this whole social media thing taking over everybody. For me, one of the interesting things about last year, um, you know, 2009 was that my mother joined Facebook, which I really hadn't thought it would ever happen. But I, you know, I sat down with her and I got her onto Facebook and I watched as, you know, she connected to one person and then Facebook would keep on recommending other people um, in, her, in her social circle. It was fascinating to watch. So I think kind of, you know, maybe we play the role of the gentle, gently introducing them to technology and it's... Uh, um, it's, it's, it has to be a personal experience. What made it interesting for my mother was nothing to do about social media or something. It was simply the fact that she was able to connect uh, with her cousin and her sister, who she hadn't spoken to because she was in the U.S. and they are back in India. So she was just able to connect with people. So it has to be personal. It has to be about the connections that make it interesting to you. I think this, uh, in, on a larger level, describing you know what's happening is much too abstract, uh, and each person kind of discovers it for themselves. I don't know if that answered your question, but yeah, I, I think it does. I was just thinking about conversations I've had recently where people are saying. I'm on all these sites, I'm using them frequently, I kind of enjoy it, but at the same time, it's like, demands a lot of my attention. If I don't update my, my Twitter, you know, for a few days, I'm out of it. If I'm not on top of everything, LinkedIn, you know, Facebook, and, and just sort of this, I have to be doing it. Right, and well, that's the, that's the, the reason that, like, you know, Google and Facebook are competitors, right? It's not that they're necessarily in the same businesses, but there's a finite amount of consumer attention that can be spent on all this stuff, right? And so each thing, each service has to individually prove its value because it's competing with every other thing that the user could possibly do, and certainly with every other thing that you could do on the internet. Uh, and I mean, that's the, that's the biggest sort of point of, of competition right now. It's not competition for customers or for sales. It's, com it's uh, competition for Time. the attention of the oversubscribed web <coughs> consumer. 
Next question. So how are you dealing with competition from Google with their Presently and Microsoft when they're launching off the slide? So Google is not, or we don't consider Google a competitor because they're about um, you know, creating presentations and we're about sharing them. And in fact, we allow you to import directly from Google, um, Google Presently to SlideShare and display your SlideShare. So we think that they can be complementary. Um, as regards Microsoft, once again, I think we are not going to enter the creation space. We are going to be all about sharing. So we will simply allow you, know, you to import from the next version of Microsoft. Microsoft, you know, find SlideShare interesting. They have a channel on SlideShare. If you go to slideshare.net slash Microsoft Office, you will see a lot of content shared by Microsoft there. So you think users would rather use SlideShare to view it than uh, Google or Microsoft? It's about distribution, right? I mean, SlideShare is a, a place to share your things. It's a way to put it out there so that other people will find it. It's a very different thing from an offering experience, whether it's an online ex offering experience or a desktop offering experience. Uh, they're, they're fundamentally not very related. Uh, and we did get a lot of questions, particularly before Google Presently uh, launched. We got lots and lots of questions about what the relationship would be, would, you know, was Google going to be a big threat. We don't get those kinds of questions anymore. And in fact, we sell advertising to you know, some companies that make uh, web-based presentation offering tools. So it's... So this is back again to your first observation about being the YouTube for um, uh, PowerPoint. Yeah. Yeah. That is, you're a broadcaster, not a content creator. Exactly. Is that, that the way to yeah. think about it? Absolutely. That we are focused on the sharing, and we really don't go into the authoring, and we want to be neutral. So we want to be, you know, wherever anybody who creates presentations, we want to be able to take that content into SiteShare. So, Oh, given that you don't have the copyright control. So in general, what we ask of our users is that you share what you either you have the copyright for or you have perm permission from the copyright owner. So um, we, we'd suggest that you share if you have owned the copyright or have permission. So I would change a few words and then you change the title and all of a sudden, 2010, use the EDA or whatever, and it's the same paper, but there's two words. Just, you know, I'm not the expert in copyright, but in general, you know, that's, uh, it I would be. I'm just trying to figure out because uh, Chris Adler from Stratus showed up here at the first talk of this quarter, and they just got themselves as YouTube for documents. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, they are for documents, right. yeah. And yeah, so I think the services are different in the sense that they're focused on writing and you know on authors, on books. We're not. We're about presentations. Presentations are used by companies or for you know putting across visual as sure. well as words together. You watch presentations, you read books. So we are although we are similar in a bunch of the formats we allow you to import. But the, but the nature of the sites are, the, are very different. Different audiences, so it depends on which audience you want to appeal to. That's another question. So. But they're complementary. Yeah. They, some people do use them as complementary. Okay. Any Next. other questions? 
Yeah, um, so we talked a little bit before about um, distribution marketing and how the embed really helped. Um, can you talk in terms of before the actual launch, um, in terms of prepping up to uh, launching, what kind of steps did you do specifically? Was it just you know telling your friends or did you kind of had a PR plan set up? Got it. So yeah, we had, as Rakshmi said, we had a, um, a invite only system. So we started just by inviting our circle of friends and seeing what kind of stuff they uploaded. And in retrospect, we should have seen what was going to come when we put the site um, <laughs> open to the public because it was not, you know, my idea with SlideShare was it was going to be stuff from conferences mostly. It was like, like the second SlideShare that was uploaded with this weird like piece of PowerPoint art with photographs of flames and water and poetry. Yeah. Like, well, I've never, I didn't know people used PowerPoint for <laughs> this kind of thing. Uh, so we did have a, like a closed alpha or whatever you want to call it, where it was the site was up, semi-functional, was being used just among the people who knew about it, um, and that was for a couple of months, and that was the, that was the point where we were almost ready to launch, almost ready to launch, almost ready to launch, and that detail work always takes a lot more time than you think it will to to really finish, you know, a particular part of an experience. You know, it doesn't have to be a whole product. But the part of the product that exists should be should actually do what it's supposed to do, and and, and tweaking and tuning that consumed most of that summer of uh, summer of '06 when we you know, we had something that semi worked, but we needed to work. Questions over there. Next question. Yeah, saw some hands up in the corner. No. Okay. that. Yeah, uh, talking about sharing, uh, could you share with us what percentage of revenues are from ad versus affiliate marketing versus uh, business services? So we don't share those numbers? Uh, not the numbers, but just at a very high level, you know. So right now, most of our revenues are from advertising. It's more of an engineering type question. So when you were looking, when you're starting to build a site, it's interesting you chose Ruby on Rails because it, it is noted for its weaker like, um, performance versus like uh, Python or PHP or .NET. So can you just talk about like, some of the decisions you made? Are you glad you did that? And would you get, if you know what you know now, would you go back and do anything different? See, that's, that kind of thought experiment is very dangerous. Uh, because obviously, if you know that something's going to be successful, you're going to do very different things than if you're in reality where you can't predict the future. I mean, I think that if you ask the, the, the Twitter team, you know, um, okay, you know, this, this idea that you have, Twitter, is going to be a massive overnight hit. Here's you know, $2 million in six months. Build it. I'm sure that they would have made something beautiful and totally scalable, and it would have been awesome. But that's not reality. In reality, you release things, and there's a 95%, 98% chance that they're going to fail. So what Ruby on Rails really gives you is this ability to rapidly prototype and just pump your ideas out into in the internet until one of them resonates and takes off. And then afterwards, there's, there's a lot of... Uh, you know, refactoring and cleaning and changing that has to be done. And it's true that it's, it's, it's maybe not the most suitable technology for a very, very large site. If you knew from the beginning that you were going to be a very, very large site, you might do things differently. But I don't think we would have gotten where we are today if we hadn't been able to rapidly iterate that way. So you have to take the good with the bad. Okay. Uh, next question. All right. One more. Going, yeah, in the back. In the back. Uh, before you started working on SlideShare, you must have have 
bunch of other great ideas. How'd you pick this one to focus on and That's go forward with it? Great question. And this is where having um, having founders, partners who are smart and picky really pays off. Because I'm the idea guy. And I just like quantity over quality with me. Uh, so I was coming up with all of these you know, ideas and I mean just like to give you an idea of like some of the stuff and like the, the spectrum. Like there was things like, you know, uh BitTorrent um box that you could sell to consumers who were afraid to install BitTorrent on their home computer or it was like PowerPoint authoring rather than uh, social media sharing site. Now so now it's getting closer to the presentation idea. Dozens of ideas. And each one of them either were shot down by Rashmi or by Amit, our third co founder. Uh, and then this idea I got it in the conference, I was like, well, I got one shot to pitch it, so I, wanted, so I actually spent a couple of days actually designing what it would be like, and I showed it to them, and they were both like, yes. Yeah. But not yes, we're going to launch the product, but yes, we're going to dedicate a month of engineering resources to see what we can get, and if it looks like something that's promising. So that was, it was pure, you know, competition in the marketplace of ideas, and this was the idea that survived that gauntlet. Yeah, we did, we did have at least one other prototype that we built and then worked on it for a month and gave up and said, no, this is not going anywhere. And then SlideShare was the second one that we actually prototyped. Wow. Well, well guys, I want to thank you for coming today. I thought uh, this was incredibly informative. And uh, uh, congratulations with SlideShare. And uh, hopefully we'll uh, be reading about you uh, at your IPO. Uh, <laughs> thank <laughs> so you. thank you very much. And thanks for coming. been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.